Okay. I think we are live now. We are in Romans this morning, Romans chapter 8, and to begin as we always do with asking for the Lord to come and help us with the hearing of his word. It's his word to us. It's not anybody's word. <laughs> so he must teach us if we are going to benefit from anything that he has said and what he has to say. Let's go and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we come before your Holy Throne as your people who are always in need because of our weakness, because of our sin. We pray, Lord, for help to hear from your word and to hear from you that we may know the things that you've spoken, that you've spoken about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ even as he redeemed us from the evil age to come. We pray for all your saints, wherever they are in this world. And we know there are many of Christ's people who have not fellowship because they cannot find a church that speaks the truth of Christ. Lord, may you be with them. And if they been given opportunity to hear the gospel even through our ministry. Lord, be with them and continue to encourage them. Help us, Lord Jesus, and in everything we pray in your precious name. Amen. All right, a good morning to one and all who is joining us. We are Berians of Grace Church here in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> And we do have a lot of God's people who are tuned in the different parts of the world, essentially across the world, who are here to hear what the Lord has given me to share with them. We have dear sisters in England, in Scotland, brothers there too, in Canada, here in the United States, in Kenya, in Zimbabwe, and a whole lot of other places that we may not even be aware of. But we're thankful that we have been united by the same God and by the same Spirit in one baptism and one gospel for which God has called me to preach. So we are thinking of you and praying for you as you pray for us. We are in Romans 8 this morning and beginning at 24 to 30 to build our context this is what Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us and said, For we were saved in this hope. We are saved in this hope. I need to connect something for a second. Just give me, indulge me for a second. If I can connect it. Okay, sorry for that. Romans 8, 24 to 30 again. The apostle says, For we were saved in this hope, 
But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the code according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And that is the word of the Lord. And we have two, t- two titles to this message. All things for good. I could not make it longer than that because it becomes difficult to write when you have to put titles to messages when you post these messages. I could say the title is verse 28. (laughs) Verse 28 is the title, but the contraption of that is all things for good. And the alternative title is God's eternal and sovereign decrees. God's eternal and sovereign decrees. Not degrees, as in temperature, but decrees. For those who did not get to hear the previous two messages, Romans number 44 and 45, we talked about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, and I highly recommend that you go and give ear to them. And as I was preparing this message, I realized that there was no talk of progressive sanctification. And when you go to read some of the titles that are in some of the Bibles to Romans 8, they actually make it a conversation or discussion of sanctification. And that could not be further from the truth. So we did not have any conversation of progressive sanctification, and yet we could not exhaust the biblical content about the work of the Holy Spirit, I could have come and given a part three and part four and still not exhausted. But much of what you will hear in the professing church as testimony of the Holy Spirit is mostly around sanctification, 
Oh, I'm going through this because of my sanctification. And if you are a follower of our teaching, you will know that we teach and believe that the sinner is not getting better and better. Because the flesh and its passions remain with them because of indwelling sin. Thus, until the person is glorified, they will continue to have this seesaw type of experience with sin. And they will say with Paul, in Romans 7:19 for the good that I will to do I do not do but the evil that I will not to do that I practice that is the faithful testimony of everyone who is telling the truth and in Romans 7:21 Paul also says I find then a law a principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So just the fact that you are willing to do good does not mean you are actually doing good. It's not translating into the doing of what you will. If evil is always present in the one who wills to do good, then it implies you are not getting better and better. Because evil is always present. So the proper conclusion of our experience is and should be, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That is a very faithful statement. Oh, wretched man that I am. So one day, one week, one month, one may think, or feel like they are doing better, they are winning, and then a few days later, sin comes and slays them again and again to remind them that salvation in all its elements, in all its parts, is unreachable by human obedience of any kind, and therefore it is of grace alone, it is of Thank God for Jesus Christ. That's what God means by sin, that we should all come and say, Thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord. And many on hearing us say the things that we say which are biblical, who charge us with being or of being antinomians. But that is not a new charge, but it is a false one that was charged against even the apostles of old, even Christ Jesus himself. We are not antinomians. We do not hate God's law or obedience, but we acknowledge the purpose for which the law was given, and that is to increase the transgression. The law was given to increase sin and to arouse the sinful passions of the flesh to amplify them. And the end of that was to shut up all men and women in hopelessness by asking them to do that which they are not able to do. 
and that's to give the knowledge of sin. This is faithful biblical testimony. If you are reading this by yourself, that's what you're going to find in the Bible. Thus, the law that gives power to sin cannot be the means to sanctify a sinner because it does not empower righteousness. It empowers sin. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. The power of the law or the power of sin is in the law. So that leaves us with only one way to sanctify a sinner, and that is the blood of Christ alone, and that blood was already shed, and so all those that were chosen by God were sanctified completely in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit was given to come and sanctify, that is to set apart by indwelling all those that Christ sanctified by his death and the teaching of this truth. So Christ Jesus is not just the righteousness for the elect. He is their wisdom. He is their sanctification, which is holiness, and he also is their redemption, which means Christ is all for those that he represents. He is everything for them. God did not say, Christ is your righteousness, but this holiness thing, that's the one that you have to work cooperatively with the Holy Spirit. No, that cannot be true. And so we do teach that the New Testament does exhort it does instruct, it does command all the saints that is the saved to an obedience as children, obeyed sinful children, as already accepted, and it gives their already accomplished salvation and acceptance as the motivation to this end of mortifying sin. God does not just say, you behave just because I want you to behave. He says, behave because I have already saved you. I've already perfected you in Christ. I've already accepted you. I've already justified you. But that the sinner is getting better and better is not testimony that we push too hard because even those who claim or have claimed to be doing better, sooner than later they get slain by sin to one level or another. They get caught in some large scandal and we still have to take them back to salvation 101 where they should have remained anyway and say to them, salvation is not in our willing or our running, but of God who shows mercy, and that his mercy endures forever. God does not change his mind because we sinned. But the Holy Spirit does have a work in the lives of the redeemed. He is given to come and indwell and as he is indwelling to work faith and repentance in the truth. 
as the truth is in Christ and calling Christ's people to him as Eliezer was given and sent by Abraham to go bear witness testimony of his son Isaac to Rebekah that she may come to her husband. And Rebekah, as we noted, being a picture of the church. And we are told also in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of grace and truth, the comforter, also the advocate. He is the intercessor on behalf of the saints on account of their weakness. So we covered much of that in the two previous messages. And having said that, we will now go to develop our message by going back to a few verses where Apostle Paul has said this in Romans 8, 20 to 21. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The elect have been justified. This is where we are in the matter of the conversation of salvation. The elect have been justified and that freely and that means without any cause, any good cause or reason found in them. So there's no condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. The elect have this relationship with God of non-condemnation for anything that they do. That's what that means. They are not condemned for anything that they do. And that's scandalous because we do many foolish things. And the reason being that Christ Jesus came and fulfilled all the righteous requirements for their salvation, a thing which the law could not help a sinner to do or to be by reason of the weakness of their flesh. The law could not help you and I to be justified before God by us trying to do the law. And this Jesus whom God has introduced to us came and condemned sin in the flesh that is in his own body by way of the death of the cross. That's how he condemned sin. And this Christ is the bringer and the only bringer of the law of life and spirit in himself, which law sets free from the law of sin and death. So two laws, principles introduced to us 
The law of sin and death brought sin, death, condemnation. Christ comes and he brings the law of life and spirit in himself. And that means the law of sin and death was also by God's doing, but for the purpose of imprisoning and then later revealing the law of the spirit of life in Christ to remove from that imprisonment. So imprisonment comes and then Christ shows up to reverse that imprisonment. And so the law of sin and death is the law that condemned the sinner through its own goodness. And it is a very popular but false argument that the law of sin and death is not the Ten Commandments or is not a reference to the Ten Commandments. If you talk to a lot of people who call themselves Reformed, who say, oh no, that's a different law, but they could never define it. It's very clear. They do not want to let go of Moses. They do not want the sinner to be set free from the law of sin and death. And it is very incredible to hear and also said, but do not be surprised if you happen to bump into this crowd. The context of Romans 8 demands that the law of sin and death be the Ten Commandments. Because it is an argument that is coming from the discussion in Romans 7, where Paul had been killed by the commandment that said, Thou shalt not covet. Paul does not have Romans 7 and 8 as separate chapters in his book or in his thought process. For him, it was a continuous development and connection of the arguments. He is continuously developing and connecting his arguments. Those are not separate chapters in his train of thought. But this is what God meant by the giving of this law. It was never given to purify the sinner before him as many have been made to think that they are now being purified by the Ten Commandments. Because the book of Ripple says, the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. So their testimony of the law is false. And Christ Jesus was not revealed to be the mediator of the law. Therefore, the law cannot purify anyone by those beggarly elements that he represented. Christ came as a mediator of grace. Grace and truth came by Christ Jesus, and the law came by Moses. And Christ was from the tribe of Judah, and that was purposeful because God was making a distinction between the covenant of the law and the covenant 
that is in the blood of Christ. But there is a lot of moving parts in this matter of God's eternal purpose, even as we experience it in creation. And that purpose can only be understood in Christ and in the context of the gospel. The redeemed in Christ have come under corruption, just as is found in the creation. And this is what happened, or this is who caused it, and why he caused it. Romans 8, 20 to 21 For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the creation was subjected to futility, and that means to vanity to purposelessness, to frustration, to death and decay. Not because of age, not because of COVID, or because of poor eating habits or sleeping habits. It was through sin and God's condemnation of it that caused the corruption. And Paul reaches out here to God's sovereignty to explain the condition of the creation in the context of the gospel. He raises the matter to very lofty heights to remove human determination or causality and that without apology he does not center his arguments of corruption on what men and women have done or not done. And he does not try to protect God. As we're going to see in Romans chapter 9, he is ramping up God's sovereignty. He does not say, the creation brought vanity on itself because of their disobedience. That is how it is taught in almost the majority of the so-called churches. They make the creation the reason why things have become what they are. But God says, no, he was and is the first cause of the vanity, the corruption, and the decay that is in his own creation it happened on his watch because that's what he intended to do. And he says this was something that was actually purposed and imposed on the creation by God himself. The creation was unwillingly subjected to corruption. Unwillingly. So there's nothing about free will there. 
Because if you have free will, you say, oh no, I'm not going to be subjected to corruption. <laughs> so there's nothing that the creation could do to resist the power of God. So when you hear people trying to clean up God and say, God is not the author of sin, evil and corruption, not that they have made a God after their own image, because they are saying sin and evil and corruption came from nowhere. It came from nowhere. But we'll say this. God being the author of the corruption that is in his creation was not evil or sinful on his part. Perfection is incorruptible. Also, God has no mother or aunt to spank him for seemingly behaving badly. He is above all things. He is above all rule and authority and does whatever pleases him. God is not under the Ten Commandments. The church world does not know this. God is not under the Ten Commandments. God is God. So he does all his good pleasure in heaven and on earth. Job 23. Job 23, 13 and 14. But he is unique. Yes, he is. <laughs> and who can make him change? And whatever he, he so desires, that he does. No one can make him change. And whatever he so desires to do, that is what he does. For he performs what is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. God will perform everything that he has appointed for every person on this planet and for every creature. And many such things he does. Still in the book of Job. Job 36. Twenty-two to twenty-four. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? All these are rhetorical questions. Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said you have done wrong? Who has stood up on their feet and taken God to court and say, I don't like the way things, the way that you have done things. Who has assigned him his way or who has said you have done wrong, remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. God's ways are perfect. Perfect. 
Even the bringing of vanity to his creation was done in his perfection. He made the creation good for its purpose. For the purpose for which he made it. That was the goodness of the creation. Let us hear from King Nebuchadnezzar who had a free seven-year class from God himself, tuition fully paid for him as he was eating grass with the beasts of the food. But when God has to teach you, he'll give you a tuition-free class. <laughs> but eating grass, he can cause grass to be yummy to you if he wants to. <laughs> Daniel 4, 34 to 35. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. King Nebuchadnezzar had his sanity given back to him. His sanity has been restored. And he has this testimony to say, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. If your understanding has to be returned to you, it means it naturally does not belong to you. Understanding is God-given. He can take it away. And my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High <laughs> and praised and honored Him who lives forever. This is anybody who has understanding from God must bless the Most High. They must praise Him and honor Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He has never lost. His dominion, not a single second. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. All the inhabitants of the earth, more than 8.1 billion of them, are reputed as, you didn't say, as nothing but as less than nothing by him. And this will shock a lot of people because they think there's something. After all, they check themselves in the mirror and they did not see any freckles. <laughs> like, okay, I have to be something. I have to count for something. In this creation, God says, no, you're nothing. And if you are nothing, it means you are nothing. And this truth must be declared. It must be praised if we should also speak truthfully and highly of God's sovereignty, his unconditional love, grace, and mercy. On some of those or toward those who are called 
the nothing. Everybody is nothing, but God has done something to a number who are counted among the nothing, and he has made them into something. That's what God has done. He has made us into something on account of his son. But we have to begin from the nothing side of things to tell the truth of God. So in the matter of our salvation, in the matter of election, God has this to say, 1 Corinthians 1, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 26. Let's continue 1, 26 to 31, for consider your calling. I like the New American Standard here, just for that line, for consider your calling, brethren. Consider your calling, and that is saying, think about you. Think about the circumstances of your life. Knowing you in the light of what God has done for you. In this matter of salvation, given the matters that are at stake, because condemnation is at stake. For you as a sinner, condemnation naturally is staring at you to swallow you up. And yet God has done something about it. For you who are nothing. So Paul says, and Paul was using this doctrine of election to the Corinthian church to try and bring order to that church. There was a lot of commotion. There was a lot of foolishness going on. So he has to draw the biggest gun and say, listen, kids, consider your calling. Your foolishness is because you're not thinking. You're not hearing the arguments of your salvation, how you came to Christ. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, in other words, he's saying, you guys are not even wise. <laughs> not many mighty, not many noble, you're not coming from power, you're not coming from the top echelons of society. But God, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. See that it is God who is doing the choosing. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, and that is a scale of going down 
He's starting from not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, and he keeps going down the scale. He's not moving up. And he's saying, this is who you are. And the reason why God did that was so that no man may boast before God. And if no man can boast before God, how then do they come to him? And Paul answers invested and says, but by his doing. <laughs> but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing alone, you are in Christ Jesus. And this is what this Christ has become, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Election by grace alone, so that if anyone should come before God in righteousness, it is because of his doing alone. So if you consider yourself as nothing, as foolish, as base, as things that are not, then there's no way to boast in your own righteousness. And on the flip side of that is, there's no way that salvation can be lost by you who are nothing, because you cause nothing that is worthy to God, so you cannot undo what God has done. Christ alone, the lamb slain, is worthy. But let's finish this with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar continued this sermon. And said, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does according to his will in heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, God's will cannot be frustrated. And God is in everyone's business in heaven and on earth. And he is in the business of messing up people's plans. And because he's sovereign, he does not need an invitation for him to come and meddle in people's business. It is one of his job descriptions as the sovereign governor of his creation. But in the end, he is doing his will. And if he does his will everywhere, but leaves no one with a free will, a free will would mean that one has power to stop God from doing what he wants to do on earth and all heaven. 
And that is a very arrogant and unacceptable way of thinking about things God. There's nothing that is a will that is free. God alone is free to do whatever he wants. That which his soul desires, that is what he does. I could not say the same for myself. I have a lot of things that I desire to do, but I cannot do them. Because my will and power are limited. But no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one has ability to resist God or to take him to court for anything. No one. It will not work. It will not happen. The people who say, when I go to heaven, when I see God, I am going to bring him to trial and ask him why he did this and that. God had already spoken to that. Read the book of Job. <laughs> so I tell you, where were you when I created all these things? Do you know when the mountain gods give birth? Do baby lions pray to you when they are hungry? Because they do to me. Okay? So go and get a free class of sovereignty from the book of Job. But if anything exists, God is behind it. He wanted it to exist and that for his purpose in Christ Jesus. But God was not and is not whimsical. He is not a gangster. He is not capricious. God is not impulsive. He did not bring vanity to his creation to see what would happen. This was not an, a science experiment for him, even a social science experiment that went bad even against his best lab practices. <laughs> he was and is deliberate and had a desired and known end to him. He did all this vanity thing, this corruption, this sin thing in his creation with a clause of redemption. And that means in hope. He did not do that as the end. Vanity is not the end, but hope is. So the decree to bring vanity and corruption to his creation was also tied together to or with the decree of redemption that in later times, in the fullness of time, he would lift his creation out of its misery, out of its vanity that he initially subjected it to. And so the vanity came in through Adam and the devil in the garden. And there were no accidents there. But Adam 
and the devil were just secondary agents in the unfolding of the decree. They were created for this very purpose, for the introduction, for the bringing in of sin and misery and vanity and corruption to God's own creation. But God was behind the whole matter. It was his script. He wasn't in the Bahamas on vacation when this happened. He wasn't sleeping either. There's nothing that is not God's script in this creation. Whether done immediately by God himself or immediately by way of secondary agents. Immediately by God means by God exerting his direct power as in the creation when he said, let there be light and there was light. That was the immediate power of God. Immediately means using secondary agents. But however he does it, it is he who is behind it. There's no secondary agent that is free from God where the angel, man, crocodiles, sea creatures, the natural elements, you think it, you name it, everything is under the influence of God. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Like the channels of water. And that is saying there's no king or person anywhere who is excluded from this channeling by God. God turns their hearts wherever he wishes for them to do his bidding. And that is what it means to be God. He is uninfluenced by his creation. God is not on the ballot box in November. He is not running for elections he has never run for a, an election. And there are no ballot boxes in heaven. There are no suggestion boxes in heaven. There's no customer care department in heaven. And it doesn't matter whether people agree with this or not. It is just the truth of the matter. There's no fire department in heaven. <laughs> But in the light of God's sovereignty, God says the creation is groaning and laboring in its God-imposed vanity. But it shall be set free at the revelation of the sons of God, these ones who are 
in Christ. These who are not under God's condemnation, these who are said to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. The sons of God await eagerly for the redemption of their own bodies from this vanity and corruption. That's why the joints, they start aching, all the health issues of age, they come as a reminder of the groaning and the vanity and the eagerness for us to be set free from this body. But they have already begun the process of this redemption because Christ Jesus has removed them from the judgment of the corruption of the first creation. They have been legally redeemed from the condemnation of their sin. Now they await with expectation the setting free of their bodies. So Paul said, verse 24, For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? So the elect, though subjected to vanity as the rest, were saved in this hope. And that is a euphemism for the redemption that is in Christ. That's the hope. But they have not entered into the fullness of that experience just yet. They only have the down payment and seal by way of the Holy Spirit who has been given as a guarantee of that final redemption. So by virtue of it being called hope, God is saying future. For one cannot hope for something that is already in their bag. God wants us to look forward to the future. And this is how he determined for things to be. Verse 25, Romans 8. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So there is a perseverance. There is patience. And patience means to bear a burden cheerfully. So we are carrying the burden of vanity and corruption by cheerfully because of the hope that has been set before us. But as we bear this burden, we are preserved by the Holy Spirit in that perseverance and working that perseverance. The Holy Spirit, everything said, is our perseverance. Why and how? Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So in our sojourn, 
God knows our condition. And our condition is that of permanent weakness. And in that permanent weakness, we groan and labor as a woman who is giving birth. And that weakness is evidenced by the truth that we do not know how we should pray to God. In other words, there is a way that we ought to pray to God, that we ought to talk to God. But because of that state of spiritual weakness, we do not know how. And God does not say, he helps or he helps those who help themselves. As popular as that statement is across the world, it is false. <laughs> Rather, he has, because of our helplessness, dispatched the Holy Spirit to come and help us in our weakness by interceding for us according to God's will. The Holy Spirit then aligns us. He makes us compliant in our conversation with God because he intercedes on our behalf according to God's will. If this matter is left to Sean to try and speak to God, he will always mess it up. Even when you are to approach the president of the United States or any other country's president, there is a protocol. There is a way to reach them. You just don't show up. Otherwise, you're going to get a good spank. <laughs> So the Holy Spirit knows God's mind and God searches the mind of the Spirit and it is agreeable with him. And that is the conversation that is happening between God and the Holy Spirit who is in you to your benefit. So the beauty of having the Holy Spirit indwelling is this verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the code according to his purpose. And that is to say, all that I've been saying was introduction. <laughs> it was building up to this conversation. Because verse 28 has a context. People love to pull it, but they do not want to work the context, so they don't get it right. Paul says, we know, in the context of all the groaning and the laboring and the weakness, he says, we know, and that is a very important assumption to make 
There is some who know something. All the saints, if and when taught of God, should know this to be true. And the Greek word that is translated for we know means to know intuitively, to perceive, to discern by any of the senses. It is a spiritual perception. We know by conviction of the indwelling spirit that we are the children of God. This is the point that Paul made earlier in the chapter. We know because of the Holy Spirit in us. But what is there to know and in what context? Paul says we know that all things work together for good. Literally, to the ones who love God, he works all things together and to good. Is the one working. It is not the things that are working themselves. It is God who is working the things together and to good. But why would Paul make such a statement? Because of the experience of the saints, the suffering, the corruption, and the weakness that he just talked about. The labors and the groans, the pain. So from our end, this is what we experience. This is our spiritual and physical condition. And now he says, this is how you must understand it. This is how you must see it. You must understand it in the context of God's absolute sovereignty in his creation for you to see the wisdom and the end of the whole matter. And his sovereignty is such that he is the one who brought us into this condition of misery. Get that point first. He is the one who brought us to where we are in our misery. And in his wisdom, he did this in view to our salvation from that which he imposed us. So it is not that the world is coming unglued. It is not that humanity's existence or God's eternal purpose is being frustrated by the guys in Washington or by some outside bad actors like droughts and El Nino, poor leaders, global warming, you name it. These are all tools in God's toolbox to do his will. But being sovereign, we must also be assured that it was and it is all happening for a good end 
because all these things are under God's control. But there was more to it. More moving parts to it that we must know in order to interpret correctly what our present seeming insoluble predicament chalk is insoluble in water you cannot make it to go into water it does not dissolve in water it doesn't matter how long you stay it doesn't matter how much you hit your pot thus our life's problems seem to be like chalk in water, insoluble. They don't ever seem to completely go away. If you overcome one thing, it seems two or three more things are there to take its place. You're thinking this year is going to be the year that I save my money and it turns out to be the worst year. <laughs> in other words, the weakness that is even in believers was by God. But it should not cause them to despair as they go through the different seasons of life. The good, the bad, and the ugly will come. Because they are in the heading of all things. The trials, the temptations, the disappointments, the sin, the losses. You're going to gain things, you're going to lose a lot of things. The pain and the tears that come with that. The hills and the valleys. Sometimes it feels like you've been in the valley for too long. All these categories are under the sovereign hand of God. The good, the bad, and the ugly, which we could have given as our title, will end for good. Because God is the sovereign and the bringer of them. He knows how much to give each to his people. And he harmonizes all things to make a beautiful song. He means to cook something delicious by all these ingredients that he brings to your life. Even when you're cutting onions, they're going to cause you some tears. But the onions don't mean to make your life miserable. They mean to make your dish taste good. <laughs> so the psalmist in Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So God is the master chef. But also he is in the business of crocheting. And to crochet a beautiful rag, one has to use a needle. And we are here underneath 
just feeling the pain of the needle going in and out. But at the top end is the beauty of God's work, God's purpose being accomplished. With God, anything is a tool. It can be used as a needle. Afflictions and the difficult things of life, sickness, unemployment, divorce, loneliness, not being married, whatever afflicting situation. It is a divine appointed needle to crochet something for your good. So all things, not just some things, but all things work out for good. Because he works them out for good and continues this activity of working Unfortunately, not for everyone, but to those who love God. But who are these who love God? It is those who are called according to his purpose. But how did they begin to love God if they were also counted among the vain and the corrupt? Because he gave them his spirit. They were born of God. First John 4.19 We love God because he first loved us. In Romans 5.5 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured in us by the Holy Spirit who was given us. So we love God because he first loved us and because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of loving God. So our believing and loving God is not the cause of God's calling but is the result of God's calling, is a result of God's love. And loving God according to the gospel is the only way to love God. And it is evidence of God's election and salvation. Loving the gospel is to love God. And that is the evidence of election and salvation. Now, the question that we have to ask and answer is, in the context of this discussion, does the world at large love God? Jesus, when he prayed in John 17, he said he did not pray for the world, but for these whom the Father gave to him. And so if this is true, 
then it means all things will not work out for the good of those who are not called by God. And in the context of what God calls good, it is not man defining what good is. It is God defining what good is. But who are these who love God for which all things will work out? It is those who are called of God. But what is that calling by God? The Greek word translated calling means divinely selected and appointed. Divinely selected and appointed. So this is not calling like calling someone's name out on the street. Or the calling as in hearing the gospel or an invitation to Jesus. This is calling as a matter of God's decree of election. This is a very important definition. The calling here is not speaking to an invitation to Jesus. This is calling as a matter of God's decree of election, of which Romans 1, 5 to 6 says, Through him, that is through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship, obedience to the faith among all nations for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You also are the elect of Jesus Christ, divinely selected and appointed of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him so the calling is our election from before the foundation of the world so god chose us in christ for the reason that he would make us holy and blameless before him. That's what that is saying in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, that we should be holy and blameless before him. But this is what it is not saying. It is not saying that God chose us that we should be holy and blameless in ourselves. That is how people want to read it, and it is incorrect. I actually know, I won't name the preacher, I know the preacher from whom I first heard that teaching, that this text is saying we should be holy in our lives because of that text. This holy and blamelessness is talking about God's work and purpose and the end or why and how of it. 
holy in Christ. That's why you were chosen in Christ and blameless because of Christ. In Christ alone are we perfect, are we holy, and above reproach, unblameable. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that he should declare us as righteous in Christ. But God's end is not for us to fly first class in this life. It is riding in coach, in economy crammed. <laughs> but perfection in his presence. That's his ultimate goal. He's not much interested in making our life too convenient. His interest is us standing before him in perfection. So the journey is rough. And he's saying, buckle up for the bumpy ride. The flight is going to experience some turbulence. But it is not going into the sea. It is going to land at its desired destination. But these who are, these who love God, are they who accord according to God's purpose, that is God's plan, God does not have purposes. He has a single purpose, single plan. Christ Jesus. Because in Christ, all of God's things are yes and amen. But where else is this word purpose used in the New Testament, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And not only this, this is a discussion of God's election according to grace. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said, the older shall save the younger. God's purpose always grounded in his sovereignty and his decrees of which election is one of the decrees. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I saw someone trying to make an argument that that does not mean that God is sovereign over the matter of sin and evil. Like, no, he works all things. (laughs) 
according to the counsel of his will. He doesn't consult anybody. Ephesians 3.11 says about Christ, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is talking about the revelation of the mystery. The mystery that was hidden from ages, but has now been made manifest according to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus. So the point is God has an eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ. And that means everything that happened from the inception of his creation was in service to the unfolding of that eternal purpose in Christ. In other words, all things hold and have their being in Christ. All things consist in Christ and are for the purpose of us to comprehend Christ or to comprehend God as he has revealed himself in Christ, as he has glorified himself in Christ. And people will come and talk about, I want to know God's purpose for my life as if they have ability to do anything with it, even if they knew it. God only has one purpose, and it is in Christ. If you are elect, it is your justification. It is your glorification. It is your blessing. If you have been brought to the knowledge of Christ, then you have understood God's purpose, God's plan, God's intention for your life. If you need to know God's purpose for you, then understand Christ. And that purpose was already accomplished in Christ Jesus, which is your salvation. But what is the matter or what is the matter of this good that God is talking about? Because people come and say all kinds of things. You're going to see it everywhere on social media. All things work out for good. Is God talking about a bigger house, a new car, and beach vacations? Is He talking the Joe Austin, your best life now? Or the requiring the purpose driven life? <laughs> Is He talking about no sickness? No. Paul says, the reason why all things work out for good for those who love God is because of the very doctrines that people hate. The doctrines that people despise. Church people love the all things work out for good part. But they hate the reasons that God gave for it why they actually work out for good. They hate that God. They hate the explanation for it. Because their understanding of the good is false. 
He says, verse 29, For whom we foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul says, for whom he foreknew, and that means these who love God are they that God foreknew. And that means more than foreknowledge of what people would do. The word is, that's translated as for new, is a compound word. You can see that for and new, the Greek is pro-genosko. Pro means before. Genosko is love, some kind of love. God for loved persons, not their actions. He for loved people. The foreknowledge is not just a mere awareness of things or of people. And this is why Jesus would say to those in Matthew 7, you know, the conversation, those who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in your name, cast out demons, prophesy in your name. And then in response to that, Jesus said, then I'll declare to them, depart from me, you lawless ones, I never knew you. Did Jesus with his omniscience meant to say he did not know of their existence? No, he was saying genosko is the same Greek Jewish word, genosko, which was a Jewish idiom for intimacy between a man and a woman like Adam knew Eve and they, she conceived. I never loved you, is what Jesus is saying. Never for loved from eternity. You were never mine. You were never given to me by the Father. So the elect were always loved of God from eternity. Because God does not begin to love those that he never loved. To Jeremiah, this is what he said, Jeremiah 1, 4 to 5. Then of the... Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before you were even formed in the womb, I loved you. And then I set you apart. That's Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. So this was God's election before the creation. Jeremiah set apart his job description defined for him from eternity. And that means I also was ordained from eternity to preach Christ because I surely was not looking for this gig. <laughs> 
So God's foreknowledge is the matter of God's election according to grace and that of certain persons and writing their names in the book of life. Verse 29, remember we're ending in verse 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's a lot of things being said here. That takes God's grace to unravel them. This is what God is doing. God is stretching us back to eternity. And what he purposed to do and saying everything that is happening in the creation and that shall ever happen is not random. It's orderly. The entire group of people that was chosen for love of God was also predestined and you can tell pre and destiny. That's a compound word even. The Greek is pro orizo, which means predetermined. Right? So it's a compound word pro, which means before, and Orizo, which means or where we get horizon. You can see if you knock off the H, that's where we get horizon. And horizon means to define or mark out the boundaries. As you see, that's the horizon. That's as far as you can see in the matters of the boundary as far as your eyes can see. So to define or mark out the boundaries or the limits thus predetermined is to set the limit beforehand. To set the limit, to limit in advance. Predestined then means to decide beforehand. So those that God foreknew as in foreloved, he also decided their number beforehand. That they should be conformed to the image of his son. The ones that he decided on beforehand. He predestined that they should be conformed to the image of his son. Now, those who think that Romans 8 is teaching of progressive sanctification, they do not get this argument right. They think we are being conformed to the image of the son every day with every message. That's not the argument. This is not talking about progressive sanctification. 
This is not talking about what happens in the redeemed's life. It is talking about the end to which these who were chosen, that they may be brought into total conformity to the image of the Son. But what is the image of the Son? It's perfection. It's righteousness of the Son. Brought into the blameless image of his Son. So being conformed to the image of Christ means being brought into the perfection and righteousness of Christ. And so the book of Hebrews says of Christ, by his one offering, he perfected forever the sanctified. The sanctified are they who were chosen. He perfected them. This is not talking about progressive sanctification. Because if Sister Kelly, you're being conformed to the image of Christ daily, weekly, and where you are now, you're too far away from that. <laughs> you're way, you're so far away. You're hopelessly far away from that image, if that's what this, this is talking about. It's talking about something different. But it has been said differently. The image of the Son is righteousness and perfection. And we have that by the redemption that is in his blood and the imputation of that righteousness. And Paul says, this was so that the son may be the firstborn among the brethren. And that firstborn title is speaking not to birth, but to preeminence that Christ may be the preeminent one even among the brethren as he is before all things. Firstborn is a Greek word, prototokos. Sounds like some city in Kenya. <laughs> it's prototokos. And it is again a compound of two words. Protos and tokos. Protos means first in time or place in any succession of things or persons. In other words, first in rank. First in influence and honor. He is the chief, the principal, at the first, in the beginning. That's the firstborn of Christ. That's the reference. And tokos or tikto is in reference to the bearing of seed or a child. So Christ Jesus is God's firstborn son by reason of preeminence and purpose not by reason of actually possessing a birth certificate. Because if Christ becomes the firstborn of God and Jesus was born some 2,000 years ago, then it should be Abraham. He would be younger than Moses. He would be younger than Adam. But that's not what that is saying. So God has brought vanity to his creation so that 
we would all our standing as we are conformed to the image of the Son as he subjects all things to himself. And that image of Christ is what pleases God alone, that image of righteousness. And this is what else God has done in the working of all things to the good of those whom he called. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. These whom he predestined, he called. Now, when I see someone, I saw some preacher on Facebook, I was amazed. I saw them talking about justification. I was going to Home Depot and I was like, okay, let me listen to this thing. I have a sense that my name is going to show up. And like 20 seconds later, he mentioned my name. And saying, oh, I have this justification wrong because I say the saints, the redeemed, are born justified. And he had a problem with that. And so he came to this chapter to try and prove that we are not born justified. So they say, see, the elect are still condemned until they have been called by the preaching of the gospel. So the preaching of the gospel becomes the means of justification. No, they are not following the argument or understanding of the word or the context of the chapter. The context of a word drives its larger meaning. The calling here, though it may loosely be said to be inviting or yelling or to utter aloud to someone, is not a yelling of someone to come to Christ and for them to be justified. God is not saying those whom he foreknew, he called that he may justify them. That is out of step with the flow of the conversation. Here is the calling. <laughs> the Greek word is kaleho. It's K-A-L-E-O. Kaleho. And this is how the New English Translation translates it. It means to call by name. To give a name to. That's the second definition. To give a name to. Number three, to receive the name of. Receive as a name or to give some name to one and call his name. So Paul is saying, this calling, understanding of salvation has not yet left God's desk to go into a preacher's sermon. <laughs> it is still seated on God's desk 
and saying, those whom he foreloved, he predestined, that is, set their number, limited their number, decided beforehand, and with that, he also named them. He named them by name. He gave them names, hence the book of life. And in Revelation, if you read, those whose names were not found in the book of life, when and how did the names go in there? By this decree of this kind of calling. This is the naming and the writing of the book. So what would be the example of this definition of kaleo, the definition of this calling, Matthew 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the definition of the calling. Do you see the naming, the identity? That is not calling Jesus to Jesus. It's the giving of identity. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When a child is born, you ask, what did you name him or her? That's the definition of it. So all the elect were thus called or named by God from before the foundation of the world. Verse that again. Whom he called. These he also justified. <laughs> these whom he called. These whom he named are also they whom he justified. That's particular redemption. How did God justify them? Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God without the law, or apart from the law, is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Righteousness by the, apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God by the faith of Christ, which is through the redemption in his blood. That's how the elect were justified. Romans 5, 8, 9. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the death of Christ is the event of a justification. The event and the cause. Much more than being now justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. The foreloved predestined were justified even while they were yet sinners, even while they were yet unbelievers, because their justification was not conditional on them doing anything, but in Christ dying. And what is God doing here with all this? He is removing all matters of salvation from the doing of sinners of any kind. Not their faith, not their obedience, not their repentance, not their good works, not the preaching of the preacher. And saying, he, he, he and he, that's how Romans 8, 29 and 30 are written, even starting from verse 28. He, he, those whom he, he did this, those whom he did this, he did that, is he, 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 he. As we see in Ephesians 1, where it is in him, and in him, and in him, and in him. And to say, Sovereign grace, salvation alone is God's gospel. And that is the only way things would work out for good, which is the sinner salvation or possession of Christ. And this is God's gospel that will take you through all the things in this life, and that life will throw a tune. And now to the conclusion of the matter. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. And that would be the bringing into conformity the foreloved with the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will happen in the resurrection. And this is what God meant to do when he brought vanity to his creation. It was for the unfolding and fulfillment of all these eternal and sovereign decrees as he had purposed them in Christ Jesus, but in the salvation of his elect. So God being sovereign and purposeful will harmonize all the seemingly contrary things and winds of your life to your good. I always want to talk about this because it's a very common one among the Reformed people in the matter of marriage and divorce. It's a big one for them. It almost sounds like it is their gospel. 
if you are divorced and this, then they start having you to question your salvation. They don't even care what circumstances caused it. Your, salv- your salvation does not hang on your marriage to another man. It is only in the decrees of God. Everything else in between is just an unfolding of the vanity and the corruption that we experience, but in the hope of the final redemption. And our true ultimate marriage is going to be and is in Christ and Christ alone. So Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side and yet not distressed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always on the edge, always looking like you are falling over the cliff, but still standing, always gasping for breath, as if to suffocate, but still breathing, almost always feeling like you're sinking into the depths of the sea, but not sinking, troubled on every side, yet not distressed to despair. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our body. And that all is saying it is well with our souls because of God's sovereignty and eternal decrees that have brought us this far and will take us home. And I'll say this in closing. Remember Joseph in the dungeon in Miss Potiphar's house and in the dungeon, and yet all things worked out for good. Remember Job and the affliction that came upon him, and yet all things worked out for good. Remember Israel laboring in enslavement for 400 years, 430 years in Egypt, and God remembered them. Remember Rahab the prostitute. She found herself in the Hebrews 11 hall of faith. It's because of this decrease. Remember David and Bathsheba and their adultery. And many would want to put David and Bathsheba, bring them to church discipline, and put them to hell. And yet, it was the unfolding of God's eternal decrees because God was working the line of the Messiah. Christ came through the line of David and Bathsheba. Remember the sin of Adam. Remember your sin. It is all for your good. Salvation in Christ. So whatever circumstances of life you are groaning and laboring under, it is not because of the devil. And even if the devil is involved, it is for your good. Because God rules over all things. And remember the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. How in his anguish he prayed more earnestly 
and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It was because and in fulfillment of God's eternal purpose and decrees in him, which is our salvation. In all things, we're working out for good. Okay? Amen. We are done. I have not given you a warning to bring your lunch <laughs> for this message. When I was working this message, I was like, man, this message is not finishing. I wanted to finish, and I could not finish it. I had to take it all the way to where the Lord wanted me to bring it. So praise God for giving me the message and to give me the strength to come and share it with you all. Let us go to him and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for these many wonderful things that have been spoken of your eternal decrees as the ones that has brought us where we are, even in our vanity and corruption, that was not the end of things. For your decrees were to love us as you have done and to predestine us and to name us as you have named us in Christ and to justify us and then glorify us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness to fulfill all these decrees on our behalf and ultimately the reason why all things work out for our good. We thank you, honor you for things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, good people. We'll see you, Lord willing. Next Monday, we'll be in Romans again, and we'll begin with these very decrees as our introduction to the next message. So be praying for us, be praying for me. I need a lot of help in everything, knowing the weakness of my flesh. I'm sure you can relate with that. All right. You have a good week and a good rest of the day.